Mail Lobby Talk Radio, the official podcast of the Mandalorian Mercs. We're a costume organization dedicated to charity efforts around the globe, attending events in Mandalorian armor we've built by hand. Here on the show, we'll keep you up to date with the latest fan community news. Visit our website at www.mandalorianmercs.com. And welcome to this month's episode of Kaldabi Talk Radio. This month, I'll be your host, Hikari, and joining me is Takur. Hello there. Jaren. Hello. Juro. Hello. And our resident education officer, Bo Fanny. Hello. Starting with some short club announcements first, I'd like to congratulate Keir on his announcement as the new quartermaster. I know it's going to be a lengthy learning curve for him, but I have every trust that it's going to be a smooth handover. He's going to do a fantastic job. And in other news, if you follow our social media outlets, you've likely already seen that the announcement for MercsCon 3 has been made, and it will be in Denver, Colorado. Keep a lookout on the relevant websites, social media outlets, and the forum for all things related to that. This month, we decided that we're going to have a deep dive into all things 3D print. It's a topic that comes up very regularly on our forums, in our builders group, and everywhere, really, that we have an outlet. So I'm going to start by throwing over to Jaren to get us kicked off. Okay, so we're a bit of a deep dive today. Um, Firstly, I do have to say that we are not sponsored or endorsed by any of the manufacturers that we might mention. And we do recommend that there are many fantastic support groups that are available out there for specific machines with performance guides, upgrade guides. There are obviously a lot of Mercs that do 3D print, but if you want dedicated knowledge on the machines, these groups are out there to help you. I think the first question that is always asked because we always see it come up with people who have just gone out and bought a machine, is do you really need a 3D printer? Um, There's a lot of people who've been making a lot of costumes for a long time before printers became commercially available. And I think, personally, I still think there are a lot of parts that can be very nicely handmade. Um, And part of the journey for myself, especially beginning as a Merc, was that process of shaping my plates, building a kit bashing and building a blaster out of spare parts. Um, and while I do personally a lot of 3D printing now, I would always stress that there are a lot of skills to be learned and a lot of the journey that will be missed if you just go out and print everything. So following on from that, it's what sort of things do you actually want to make? And long term, what are you going to use it for? I want to Is make it, all of the things. Oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, obviously I do a lot of role-playing, tabletop games and stuff like that as well, and you can use it for printing scenery, wargaming terrain. Uh, I have printed shelving brackets for my son's room because he wanted a costume rail in a weirdly angled corner. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. Um, there's a lot of potential commercial uses for it. Um, but quite often, if you're looking at it to, like, I'm going to buy a machine just to print this set of armour is it going to gather dust afterwards or are you actually going to get a practical use from it ongoing is it cost effective as well yeah yeah again this something that will come into is sort of what what level of investment you like to make into a machine um again if you're just picking up a cheap machine as a as a 
a hobby, yeah, something to play with, then yeah, great. But if you're looking at one of the, the bigger, almost commercial level or more expensive uh, sort of end user level machines, it's quite a lot of money to throw out in one go that might in six months time not be doing anything at all. And the resale value on these, it's, it's there, but it, it's not that easy to shift them on. So, yeah, the first question is always going to be, are you, do you really need it? Are you going to get more use out of it? And, yeah, before you spend your money, think about that. Over the last couple of years, um, we haven't seen any huge changes, but a lot of things are becoming more and more readily available. Um Hardware has kind of pretty much stayed the same on most of your basic um, plastic printers, uh, what's called FDM printing. Uh, but what we've also seen in the last couple of years is more of an emergence of desktop, very low end, very low cost resin printers. Um, and these are rapidly evolving over the last couple of years. The uh, level of detail you can get out of them is vastly improving. The speed is vastly improving. Um, but over the last couple of months, uh, we've also seen um, a couple of new processes coming in. I think the the common term for it, I'm, I'm not might not be 100% correct on this, is input shaping, which is allowing this new new generation of machines to run a lot faster and a lot more accurately. And I think that's going to rapidly change the market. Um, I mean, you guys have you've, you've all seen the difference between a, a plastic print and a resin print. There's quite a lot of opportunity there, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And for those of us that hate sanding, resin is definitely preferred. Yeah, yeah. The couple of resin prints I've worked with, it's basically been give a light sand, hit with a filler primer, light sand, done. Yeah, that's it. Enough to get some adhesion from the paint. That's it. Yep. Yeah, it's resin. I, I personally think resin is great for detail parts. Um, I, I've used it to do things like thermal detonators because then you get a really nice shiny finish on it. Uh, any tiny greeblies to go in on a blaster or as extra details to add to armor. Uh, I think we've looked at doing the, the iron hearts in resin as well to get some fine oh, detail custom, in custom there. Custom chest diamonds yeah. are fantastic in resin. Um, mm. But at, at the top end, we're now seeing people start to actually 3D print helmets in resin. Uh, I think the the investment you need there is a couple of thousand pounds because it's almost an industrial level machine. Um, but yeah, yeah, it resin, has... resin printer with a vat size of a cubic feet sounds, yeah. <laughs> uh, sounds a little expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 quite scary to see how fast resin is moving. I mean, I I picked up my first um, which one did I get first? The Mars. And within a couple of months, there was a Mars 2, a Mars Pro, and then the Saturn, which was bigger. And then you've got the Saturn 8K, the Saturn 12K. And again, you've got any cubic producing similar machines. You've got, uh, I think, is it Frozen? Uh, is it? I'm mixing my brands up there. Photon. There's a lot of Photon, thank you. Um, these machines are great desktop machines um, for doing fine detail parts. But the disadvantage to them is it's some as yet untested chemicals um we don't know what sort of the longevity of this stuff is we don't know how toxic it is and there's a lot of conjecture about that um i personally have had some bad reactions on my skin from using resin it, it's something you have to be more careful with so whereas you don't have to 
do a lot of the post-processing that you would do with a standard plastic uh, filament print, the materials you're using need a little more care and attention. Um, you've also got uh, different grades of resin that you can look to use, uh, but materials are something that we can, we can come back to. The other major thing that you're going to need to have before you pick up any machine, and again, depending on budget, some of these will run out of the box. Um, you, you can literally turn them on, forget about them, and there will need to be some maintenance and some occasionally keeping a check on them. But a lot of machines are almost in a kit format, which again will save you a little bit of money when you're buying them. But you need to be, you need to feel competent enough that you can put one of these machines together. And if something does go wrong, generally it's going to be a mechanical problem. Are you of the mindset to go in and figure out what that problem is? Um, or is it something that would potentially cause you to throw the machine away in frustration? Um, things do go wrong. Um, and, and I think that's an important point to highlight because the I've never owned a 3D printer. Uh, something you said early on is... If I had one, I would go, oh, this is cool. I'd print a few things and then it would gather dust. I, I don't have the inclination just to keep pushing through with it to get to a point where I'm using it all the time. Calib calibration and maintenance are, are, are key, but things will always, always happen. Um, mm. I've, I've seen some horror stories from other people's machines. I've seen a few horror stories myself. I've had the classic golf ball of filament attached to the hot end because something's come free from the bed and melted itself onto the print head. Um, the nest of spaghetti is always a classic. Um, I think the, the, the most expensive one I've had to date was a blaster broke free of the build plate on my resin printer and punched through the LCD screen and the tank underneath filling the machine up with resin. I remember you um, telling me about that one. Yeah, that was a good one to come downstairs to. Um, things things go wrong um, and even as I, I, I print commercially um, I probably have maybe a, a 1 in 20 failure rate um, and that's I'm, I'm I'm fairly obsessive about keeping my machines maintained um, but again things do go wrong there are mechanical failures a uh, slight bit of grease on the bed something slips free something doesn't adhere properly something catches uh, the change in the humidity of the room cause stringing on the filament which can cause a blockage later on things happen um, and you need a strong enough mindset to deal with for example printing a helmet a helmet can take two to four days depending on your settings and there is nothing more dispiriting than walking into where your machine is at 95% and seeing it failed it's it happens uh you, you can try and fix it you can print it again um but it's whether you are able to kind of then pick yourself up and carry on um yeah print failures are, are just a thing just just like any other bit of machinery um so i've got a question for the group so i've been in the mercs now probably seven-ish years maybe coming up eight now you past five years everything starts getting a bit fuzzy <laughs> at that time 3d printers were 
high-end hobbyist, I would say. They weren't... You couldn't just pop down to something like Walmart or Target or the like and walk home with one. Yeah, your your cheap-end models were still in the, like, $500, $600 range. Exactly. So yeah. what, what would we say would be the key things that have changed over the last five years that Assembly. now allows to be at a point for people to be able to say, I want to go out and buy one to make this costume with? Uh, the extrusions and things that uh, they're building a lot of the machines out of now um, are allowing for faster and more efficient uh, assembly of the machines. Yeah. Uh, so you're not having to go out and, and uh, find all of the threaded rods or the bolts or things like that in order to assemble a machine. Uh, whereas back in like 2013, you did have to do that kind of thing or buy one yep. pre-assembled for a higher cost. Oh, My yeah, first, the, the hobbyist ones looked like they were held together with string tape and hope. Yeah, even yeah. <laughs> my first Prusa kit uh, six years ago was all threaded rods, um, and that was a lot of measuring, a lot of patience, uh, just to get everything perfectly squared away. Um, but now, again, just buying the extruded aluminium parts, um, I think the the term somebody said for it was a, a race to the bottom. Um, there have been a lot of new companies come in to see see how they can get out there, get these parts out there cheaper faster um there's been obviously a lot of cloning of some of the open source hardware that's available uh things like the uh, bontech extruders which are now kind of generic on most machines just using a, a dual gate uh, dual gear extruder which is designed to have more grip and better push a constant flow of plastic going through the machine these have been massively cloned but they're it's the standard of what you want on your machine these days. But again, the, the more those are being cloned, the more they just appear as default. So as, as you're saying now, there's a big difference in prices. Um, I know usually there's, there's quite a big sale on every year in America where you can go down and pick up an Ender 3 for like nearly $100 or just below. Um, or am I hearing that from another group? I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I mean, $100, $200, £200, pounds, You'll pick up a basic desktop machine these days that will, out of the box, a little bit of tinkering, putting it together, will print things for you. Um, they won't necessarily be perfect and they'll need some tinkering. Um, but if you want to start somewhere, you want to make small things like blasters, greeblies, um, gauntlets even. They're about the right, right size for those sort of machines. And at this size, we're talking about uh, 20 by 20 by 20 centimetres, which... Forgive my metric. Uh, sorry, I'm just going to measure, check that with a tape it's measure. About like six and a half inch by six and a half inch by six and a half inch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which will make you things. Um, and that's, again, 100, 200 pounds, about the same in dollars. Um, that That's an entry level machine. Um, if you want to go above that, uh, you can then look to spend more to go up to, say, a bigger build plate. Um, if you want to start making something like helmets, you're going to need to start looking at around about 30 by 30 by 30 centimeters. And then you're looking at the uh, Ender 3 Max, the Creality CR4s. Uh, is it the artillery? Is it the Sidewinder that starts at that size? I can't remember offhand. You've now got the, I think, the Elegoo Neptune or. I think it's the Neptune, is their entry-level machine. Uh, again, that increases the size of what you can produce. Uh, or you could look to increase the quality of what you're producing, in which case you could start looking into uh, prusas. Uh, prusas are expensive, 
but their quality and reliability out of the box is incredible. Um, I've been running two for six years now. Um, they still work. I have updated parts on them. In fact, my old Mark II is now nicknamed Theseus because I have changed a lot of parts upon it. Uh, it is barely the same original machine. Um, I think I have enough old parts left over to actually build another one now. Um, but I also run side by side with that an Ender 3 Neo and an Ender 3 Max uh, because they were cheaper machines. But with the experience that I've had over that time, I've been able to calibrate them and dial them in to do what I want with them. And as a beginner machine, the Neo for small stuff, fantastic. The Max for big stuff, again, fantastic. Just being able to put in a little bit of time to calibrate them uh, makes a big change. The other option so, there is... Sorry, go on. I was like, talking about start, starter machines there. Yeah. I was interested to know, um, Bo and Jura, I know you're both... Uh, if, if Lee is more of the commercial end, I think Bo is probably an addicted hobbyist and Juro is a getting-into-it hobbyist. How do your first machines compare to when you bought them to now? My first machine was a pressure clone and... It was significantly less intelligent than the machines that I have now. Uh, not a lot of uh, plug-and-play, not a lot of uh, information on it that wasn't in a different language that I could not read. Um, now it comes out, assembly is, is like Ikea furniture, where you just look at the picture and put the pieces together. Um, but I have four machines right now uh ranging from resin to uh larger fdm uh, with the cr10s so the, the 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 speed and quality of the machines is improved too so um size and uh the price too i started 10 years ago and the price was double the what i might have paid for my largest printer i have now And then uh, I still have yet to actually pick up my first machine, but I've been, um, and this is another great way to try and figure out if it's something for you, but like find your, your local Mercs or any, any sort of, you know, group that's doing 3D prints, even if you just have to, you know, resolve to picking some up off of uh, other sites on online. Um, but like getting a chance to play with different styles of prints, different materials, mm -hmm. um, it's been really, it kind of, you know, it, it's saving me from just being like, I want to get into 3D printing and just going off and buying whatever I now have. Okay, so here's here's my checklist of if I get something, I want something that can print a whole helmet. And then if I do, if I do something with resin, I want something that can at least print, um, you know, a, a pistol blaster size, yeah. um, something like that, you know, so I have I have some more ideas of what what I'm looking for when I'm going into buying my next machine and uh, with a couple of the sales that are probably coming up this year, I might just dive in this year. Finally. I think materials yeah, is, a, I think... is a good point to come back to in a minute. Sorry, go on to go. Sorry. No, that's right. I was just going to say I, I'm, I'm of the school where buying a printer isn't actually for me because there are plenty of services within the clan. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you're right. It, it's, it's, it's looking at what's available and cost and functionality. But I'll let you uh, 
let you continue because 3D no. printing is definitely not my bad. <laughs> I think, again, the your base cost and what you're getting for that cost is, is a critical point. Um, again, buying the, the £100 machine or buying the £180 machine could be a big difference because there'll be small upgrades that are, again, common on a lot of higher-end machines but aren't always there with the cheaper ones. There are things that you're looking for like automated bed levelling, which will make getting your print initially stuck to the print bed a world easier. Uh, you've got removable build plates, which again, once you've finished your print, you can pop off this magnetic sheet and just pop your print free rather than sitting there with a scraper and potentially shattering a, a nice piece of glass. Um, automated filament run-out warnings, power recovery, uh, which is temperamental, but having it on a machine, especially when you're doing a two or three day print, is a big help if you, you know that you've got brownouts or blackouts in your area as a common common occurrence. Um, so again, looking at those basic bits of extra functionality or the opportunity to upgrade later on are always helpful. Um, the Max that I own, I went back, added a second basically vertical drive screw for more stability. I added the uh, automated bed sensor and I made a few small changes. So I've, got, I've gone back and maybe spent an extra £100 or so on upgrades just to get that 100% where I wanted. Uh, whereas the Neo already came with uh, the bed levelling sensor. That was, that was ideal for me. And the only thing I've added to that was the magnetic build plate. Again, knowing that you've got a big degree of potential for upgrades and changes to the machine to dial it in the way you wanted... It's also quite a useful thing to have. Uh, some of the higher end machines aren't so easy to adapt, uh, especially when you've got some of the newer brands like Prusa, or sorry, Prusa is an older brand, but most of the hardware they use is designed to use their own hardware rather than off the shelf parts. Uh, same with W Bamboo Labs, who are relatively new out. Um, whereas the Creality and Ender machines, you can just pick the parts up off Amazon if you need to, or other similar vendors. Um, so there, there's always the option to tinker. Uh, and I'll, I'll put a caveat on there. Anytime you do tinker with your machine, there's a chance you're going to throw something off. So when you've got your machine working and you're happy with it, beyond that point, keep it maintained, keep it clean, do not mess around with it. Otherwise you'll be constantly tinkering and changing and never getting a clean print out of it. And that, kills kind of the fun of it it also sounds like software coding yeah yeah you find a uh, bug you track it down you <laughs> fix the bug you get introduced two more yeah it's it's <laughs> it's one of the things that you can you'll always have problems with uh because you've not only got the obviously the hardware of the printer but you've got plastic being melted which has potentially chemical and thermodynamic which I'm not going to pretend to understand, but you've got a lot of thermal dynamics going on there with plastic heating and cooling and various changes in dimensions and tolerances of things there. With resin, you've got, again, curing with UV light and doing very strange things there and knowing whether or not it's going to stick to the build plate or to the screen, which you really don't want. Um, there's potentially chemical problems, you've got potential hardware problems, and you've got potential software problems when you're using your slicing software. So uh, again, for the uninitiated, um, when you have your 3D print printer, uh, to make it go, you get a 3D model, which is commonly is a, an STL file. 
that STL file will be uploaded into a bit of slicing software. Um, and again, different brands have their own bits of software, um, but they're all most of most slicer softwares have profiles for different machines. Um, and this bit of software then basically takes your model and cuts it up, slices it up uh, into all the different layers that will then make it print. And again, you've got a lot of settings there that you can potentially play with that won't necessarily make things better. Um, so if, it don't, if it's not broke, don't try to fix it. Once you've got it working, you don't need to make any changes uh, as long as you're happy with what's coming out of your machine. Um, but again, there are ways to use your slicing software to print faster, print stronger, tougher parts, um, or to experiment to cut down the amount of support or material that you're using. There's, again, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So take the time to learn how it works, calibrate the machine, and when you've got it there, don't change it. And there speaks the voice of experience. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've screwed up a few times. <laughs> Same. So beyond this point, obviously, if you're looking to be a bit more serious about it, you might want to look at one of the more professional level machines. So something like the new Prusa Mark IV, the Bamboo Labs P1P, I believe Creality are now releasing a K1. All of these are sitting in the kind of like the 700 to 1,000 pound range these are a new generation of machines they are very very good out of the box and potentially what they are now capable of doing uh thanks to um the developments in input shaping and the way these machines are being built and coded uh they can run up to 70 percent faster than the old generation of machines and this is a big shift um they are faster and cleaner than last year's printers. And that's that's a big shift to the industry. It's, they're not cheap machines. Um, I won't, won't lie there, but the quality that you'll get out of them will be worth it long-term. Um, so if you're looking for reliability or you have a lot of budget, um, or you're looking potentially to go down a commercial avenue with this as a, as a vendor or maker yourself, these are the sort of machines you wanna be looking at for reliability. Um, the other thing obviously you need to look at there is once you've got these machines running, there is always going to be an ongoing cost. Uh, you can keep them maintained. You can keep everything oiled and cleaned, free of dust, keep your bearings greased, and they will just work. But there will be mechanical failures. Belts are going to break. Nozzles are essentially consumables uh, unless you spend a large amount of money to get a swanky hardened steel one. Um, you're going to have to replace parts regularly. Uh, I mean, when you're looking at a hundred pound machine, uh, a basic entry level machine, it would be tempting to just replace the whole machine. But again, you can replace these parts and keep this machine going. As like my my Theseus machine, there's barely anything left of the original machine in there. I think the only things that are left that haven't been changed are the power supply and the motherboard. Um, everything else has been upgraded or replaced over time. And this is something that you're going to have to factor in because if you're going to keep a machine running for a couple of years, there's going to be failures. There's going to be parts that need to be replaced or upgraded or improved. And there will always be an ongoing cost there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think six years, 
six years for my Prusa machines, and they they still just work. Um, the Enders again, they they've been running about a year now, um, and they're they're doing well. Um, but I say both of them have had replacement parts. Uh, again, some of the the stock parts that you get again, you're, you're buying a cheaper machine. Some of the stock parts aren't as good. Uh, I've replaced the extruder motors and drives on both of them. I've replaced the Bowden tubes, which filter filter the plastic into the extruder, have both been replaced. Uh, the nozzles have both been replaced. It's it's just part of the run the cost of running the machines. It's just how it works. So you you talk there about the cost of running the machines and items that will inevitably wear fail. I guess especially if you're buying an entry level machine. Is there a market for say aftermarket parts? I know sort of in the automotive world, something breaking is the opportunity for an upgrade. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of opportunities to change around your hot end setup, change around your extruder setup, um, change to a different motherboard that will run different software, change to different drivers to make the machine more quiet. And again, that will need a new motherboard and generally new stepper motors. Um, change to different bearings, change to a different frame. Uh, I was saying, uh, as Bo was saying earlier on, I, I my initial build was all threaded rods, but there was an opportunity to get an upgrade kit that replaced all of that with extruded aluminium. And that, again, helped the machine be more stable, reduce vibration. Um, there, there's always an opportunity to change something. And then also, much like the automotive industry, is there ever a point where you're like, this machine is totaled, just get a new one? Or is it is it fairly... It's fairly easy to replace parts for for not as expensive as just buying another one. I mean, I know you mentioned before about the the enders being fairly cheap, so for most brands, yes. Um I know that my my Mark II, my Theseus is rapidly approaching end of life because the machine is no longer supported, which means some of the official parts for it I won't be able to source. Um doesn't mean there won't be third party put parts to keep that going. Um but Prior to having my Ender 3 Max, I had another large format printer. I'm not going to name the brand. Uh, suffice to say, I took a sledgehammer to that machine one day, um, <laughs> and I was very happy to do so. <laughs> uh, I That machine in particular, I never had any joy with. There was always something going wrong or something that required fixing. And I generally found that even the manufacturer themselves didn't always have the right parts in stock to keep it going. Some of the parts it used had bespoke fittings that you could only buy in one or two places that never had the right stock, or when they did, they'd send out the wrong part. Um, and that that was that was a mistake. That that machine was a mistake, and I I, I almost bought it on a whim on someone's recommendation that I, I should have really dug into first um and i regretted every every time i used that machine um and yeah that it got to a point where i think the what was it that failed i think it was one of the fans again that failed um but it was 
it should have been around about a 40, 50 pence part. And it was just impossible to find a replacement uh, because of the way they'd modified it or, or made it a bespoke part there. I just couldn't get uh, the, the part that I needed. And I, I just had enough at that point. Um, yeah, I completely understand that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, if you want, if you want your machines to be user friendly, um, you need to make the parts for these accessible. Right. Yeah, it's common sense. Um, so yeah, there's there, there's a learning curve to to what brand you buy. Um, do your research, do your reading, look at the community groups, look at how well supported they are, look at how responsive the makers are, um, and uh, make your own judgment on that. There. Um, I think that is an important one because I know. I can sometimes have a tendency just to jump into things when I go, oh, that looks good. It's easy yeah. to do. It's very easy to do. We've all been there. So beyond that, I think the next thing that a lot of people are going to have to consider, uh, obviously the, the difference between resin printing and plastic, I know we're, we're talking mostly about plastic here, um, but FDM plastic printers have the opportunity to print a lot of different materials um even a basic entry-level machine can print uh, pla and abs when you start going up to the the higher grade machines you're looking at things like uh nylon carbon fiber or even um wood fill or metal fill uh filaments um which are very interesting potentially for applications in costuming but they are very abrasive and will damage your machine and they need a little bit of work uh, you've also got things like TPU, which is a rubberized plastic. Again, printing something like a vibro blade out of that, potentially a great idea. It's not easy to print and it's not easy to finish, um, but it, it's all got possible applications. Um, the commonest materials you're going to run into are going to be PLA uh, or an enhanced PLA, which is a, a better version, a PETG and ABS. Each so if you're are... looking at those three materials, yep. is there any specific changes you need if you get a basic setup or are they just printable straight away? So PLA will most of the time print on any machine and the same with a, an enhanced or a PLA plus. Um, they're easy to print. They sand nicely for the most part. Um, the enhanced PLA has a better resistance to warping as a little less brittle. And for general making, uh, it will do your job. But if you're in, especially in American climate, where it can get very, very hot, PLA might not last out for making props with. Um, in which case, you're going to be wanting to look at something like a PETG. The PETG is, I, I think it's polyethylene glyconol. I'm possibly getting that wrong. It's a little more complicated to print. Um, it's a little more difficult to get that layer adhesion down perfectly and to get it to print cleanly, but it will give you a very hard wearing part. So again, this is something that you want to spend the time to calibrate your machine and calibrate the material. Um, but long-term you'll, you will get some good parts out of it. It just takes that little bit of extra work to get it to that point. The last option is ABS. ABS, most machines can print, but for anyone that's worked with any kind of ABS armor or plastic toys or things in the past, it warps. Uh, you've got to be careful with it. 
Ideally, you want to be printing it in an enclosure to make sure there are no drafts or temperature variations. Uh, and you ideally want to be extracting the air around the machine because the gases from ABS aren't particularly pleasant, just like heating up cinture or something. You don't want to be breathing that stuff in. Um, biggest advantage to ABS, though, is you can chemically clean it um, just using... My brain's gone blank. Acetone. Acetone, thank you. You can use an acetone wash very carefully to smooth the surface off and with a, uh, and end up with a minimal amount of sanding. I've so seen some people do uh, just AB or uh, acetone vapor for, for ABS. Yes. They just stick it in the yep. same, same box as some acetone and pop it out a little bit later and everything's a little bit shinier and the, the layer lines are less uh, cliff-like, a little bit more rounded. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a very easy material to smooth off and finish, but again, you need to put a bit of effort in beforehand to get it to print cleanly. Um, for the most part, again, a controlled environment. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. For, the, for the most part, again, being based in, in Europe and a, a cooler climate, I find an enhanced PLA is more than enough for what I need um, and generally get very, very good results out of it. There's no fumes to worry about. It sands nicely and it, it does the job. Um, beyond that, you're then obviously starting to look into things like getting the quality out of your print that you need. Um, it's it's a time-old damage of do you want it fast or do you want it good? Always good. Everything we do yeah. should be always good. Absolutely. So there's, there's ways to make things faster and still be good. Um, the main thing that people are looking at is going to be uh, the height of your layers, the resolution. Um, and this is usually down to something like an average is 0.2 millimeters per layer. If you want fast, you go up to something like a 0.3. Um, but then you start noticing that more. If it's something with not big flat sides, it's not that much of a problem. But for anyone that's worked on a 3D printed helmet, you know what it's like when you get to the top of the dome. The lower the resolution, sorry, the lower the quality, the lower the resolution, the better it is technically, uh, the lower the quality of the print, you, you notice it more at the top of the dome. There's a lot more to sand out and finish. Um, but again, that gives you a bit of extra speed. You can get that print out that a little bit faster. You've then got things to think about, like the amount of support material that you're using. Uh, do you want to fully support the inside of the dome on that helmet to make sure that it doesn't collapse when it's printing, which is, is a failure point. Again, it does happen there. That extra bit of support for the dome of the helmet, because that's coming all the way up from the bottom of the print bed. Uh, I know, obviously, there are ways to print it upside down and mitigate that, but that adds on material, which would be wasted as support, and adds on, again, potentially a day of printing time. The other things you're looking at are the amount of walls inside. Most 3D prints, except obviously some resin prints, aren't entirely solid. They have a, an internal, almost like honeycomb infill structure. And you can choose how high the percentage of that infill is. You go up to 50% and you've got an almost solid part in most cases. Generally, you're not looking around about 10 to 15% and that will give you a strong print. Especially if you want something big like a jetpack, go down to 10%, keeps the weight down. It does have problems in some cases. You might want to go 
a bit higher for strength, but it depends how reliable your machine is and again how you you are to working with those those different infills and what the material is good for. The other option on that is the perimeters, which is the number of walls around the outside of the model. And again, two to three here is an average. Uh, it gives you a, a decent enough surface that you can sand without going through it. But if you want something solid, you go for four. You know, a helmet printer with four walls, you can probably drop and it will bounce at least once. Um, but it depends how, how much you trust yourself to look after your prints, uh, how much you know they're going to be used. Uh, or how much you know that potentially they're going to be stressed. Um, I recently printed a lightsaber for somebody um, that I know they wanted to fit a blade into without having any kind of metal support structure. So again, I increased the infill, I increased it to four perimeters, four walls, and it's a strong enough part. I still advise them not to go out and try dueling with it, um, but it should at least hold the blade structure, blade in place and give them a, a functioning custom lightsaber um there's considerations to make what's it going to be used for how much is it going to be stressed how fast do you want it how strong do you want it these are all things that you can play with to get the best out of your machine and get the best life out of the props that you're making it's always fun when people tell you that they want to do fighting or something with items that are literally glued together layer by layer yeah (laughs) I think it's a, it's a fairly common one that comes up with the people that are wanting to use it for um, airsoft. Yeah. Don't, I, don't uh, do that. Yeah. <laughs> as somebody that used to play both paintball and airsoft, yeah, I don't, I don't see, uh, I don't see many prints surviving uh, first contact with the pellets. I mean, it's weathering, but yeah. Be the same with the <laughs> saber. Yeah. So in, in terms of, uh, just, just try to shift, shift the topic for a moment. So we spent a long time talking about, say, the, the, the pros of having it, maintaining it, and we're at a point where we have our item. Yep. I think it's important, because I think nearly all of us, uh, a good chunk of us have been involved as a Roos Law at some point in our careers. 3D print lines... I know I've got a couple of arms here that would like to talk about sanding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, ju- I'm just going to say this once, and I know there's a few people that will support it and a few people that will be vocally against it. 3D printed lines are not evocative of machined metalwork. No, absolutely. If you not. have. If you have lines on your machined metalwork, it is a badly made piece. That excuse will not fly. It will not fly with your law. It will not fly with the approval team. You just need to sand it. Yeah. And if you think you've sanded it enough, sand it more. It, and yeah. paint on it and then look. Yeah, paint, paint is the true teller of lines. Oh, yes. I've had prints before that I thought were smooth. Um unable to feel any texture with like a, a nail um hit it with the primer and it's almost like have i done anything in the last two hours everything looks to still be there yeah yeah that's always yeah. that's always a little bit disheartening and uh thing to fight over 
this is it's it's the big difference between making your chest plates out of Sintra and making them out of plastic. Now Sintra is still going to be a bit sanding to tidy it up after you've heated it, but will be shaped nicely to your body. That 3D printed plate, unless you've got Pedro Pascal's physique or one of the stuntmen's physique, is never going to be the same fit. Or you're using and the appropriate software. You're going to be putting in the extra time to make sure it's sanded smooth, especially if you want that chrome finish. Uh, I think we don't want to stray too far into the different approaches to, to sanding. Maybe that's something we can come back to in physics. I know we've all had experience on different ways of finishing props, which are relevant across all sorts of things. But yeah, it's always a consideration that the better you calibrate your machine, the better quality you print at, the less finishing work you're going to have to do afterwards, but you're still going to have to do it. And yeah, if you would like, like to know... Like we... Go ahead, Bo. If you'd like to know a little bit more about finishing techniques for prints, you can check out the Jad Halls of Knowledge Just a little little shameless plug there. Absolutely. <laughs> All about cross-promotion. I have no issue with that. Yep, One of the yep. reasons we have the education officer sitting on board with us. All jokes aside, there are some great tutorials there. So we've we've talked about uh, sort of getting... You've, you've got your entry-level machine. You've set it up. You've calibrated it. You've had something break. You've got the opportunity for upgrades. Have we particularly deep-dived into, and maybe this is too deep, um, firmware? Because I, I understand from some of the upgrades you have done, it's not always just the case of, that upgrade looks good, I'll just bolt that on. Yeah. And I think that might be important to highlight. Yeah. I mean, even, even having experience having built PCs... Uh, obviously last time with, with your your help, in fact, um, and experience of running these machines for so long, the word firmware update still scares me. Um, usually things are fine, um, but it's, it's, essentially, it's essentially brain surgery on your machine. And anytime you want to add a new upgrade, uh, especially with the Ender machines, uh, if you want to add your automated bed leveling sensor, you're going to need to do a firmware update. Uh, for the most part, there are, again, some great community resources, community groups out there around these machines and obviously their own developers that have produced the firmware you need to install into that machine to accept that upgrade and run. Uh, usually this is a fairly smooth process, um, but with any degree of software, there are bugs, there are things that are occasionally unstable. Um, I've had one of my machines reset itself to a Chinese dialect once or twice. Um, things go wrong. Uh, it's, but yeah, generally, if you're doing a, a a hardware update like that for anything that adjusts the running machine in such a way, a firmware update is going to be essential. And it's, again, just one of those things that you need to be aware of. Um it's quite often, again, that you can get to a point where you know once the machine is running smoothly, you, you don't need to make any more updates to it. Um, but at any point that you need to do something critical, make a critical change, make a repair, make an upgrade, it is something that you'll need to look at. So in terms of upgrades, um, so we spoke briefly about 
resin printers and the fidelity they give. Can I presume because of their nature, resin printers aren't perhaps as good for upgrading and effectively what you buy is what you have until you get another one? Yeah, at the moment, um, we're seeing almost new machines pop up every six months or so. There's there's still a lot of movement in that market, but it's the same basic structure. You have your print bed attached to a vertical rod that raises up. You have a vat that holds as resin. And you then have the main place we're then seeing the upgrades is in the bank of UV lights that sits below that and the LCD screen that sits between the lights and the resin tank and the quality and obviously responsiveness of those lights and the lcd screen is what gives you the final quality of your resin model um the hardware there isn't really changing at all um it's just getting better or tweaked um there's not really much you can play with there other than odd things like almost like a, i've seen a couple of uh Brands are introducing almost like a drip feed resin bottle so that it's something that can happen is the tank runs out of resin, which is a pain. Um, but having a, a constant drip feed of resin can help support that. You've got things like um, warming bands that will help keep the resin at a stable temperature. There's little add-ons that are being made, but the core hardware there isn't really changing in what it does. It's just being improved. So a bit of a wackier question for you. Are there weird and wonderful machines people could look up if they just wanted to see something funky like uh, almost like treadmill style machines that say remove one of the axes? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's actually, there are a couple of commercially available um, that are almost, uh, again, literally like a, a treadmill or they're, they're designed for continuous printing of parts where the whole thing, that the bed is still flat uh, but runs as a conveyor belt and the print head generally runs at 45 degrees. As is great for batch production, uh, it can just churn off the same thing over and over again. It drops off the belt at the end into a hopper, and then you keep producing small parts. But you can even see them doing big things like printing a, a long sword blade uh, or printing a long rifle or something, all, all potentially doable on that sort of hardware. There's a couple of great videos where you've got uh, these massive great conveyor belts extended out across a room to print stupidly long parts um not something to look at for fun uh, or something to look at for massive batch production um but unless you've got the room for it it's uh, an, an interesting machine to play with um the other ones that again adds a degree of complexity into things and i'm not sure how much use it would have for the costuming market given the amount of post-production that we have to do uh is multi-material printers and these are designed to have uh, up to four different strands of filament coming into the same print head uh, so you can then print something in multiple colors um, this is great for shelf display pieces or little small interesting parts that you, you just you're never going to paint um, the best possible use i've seen for that from a costuming side uh, is that one of the materials you could push through is a pva based plastic which is actually water soluble so what you can do then with that is you use that material to print all of your support structures the bits that hold the print up that you have to remove afterwards but what you can then do with that is once the print is finished you take the whole thing off the bed throw it into some hot water 
and that PVA plastic dissolves away. No more supports on your printer. It's it's clean. Uh, the number of times I've cut myself removing supports made from normal plastic is um, ridiculous. So yeah, there's multi-material is, is something to look at. My it's something I, I would like to look at myself, but my general thought behind it is it, it's enough when you've got one one strand of filament, one extruder that can go wrong. Upping that to four adds all those extra problems that could potentially stop a print running. So I've I've stayed away from it for now, but it, it's something that's worth looking at. And then a quick question on that: given given the differences in materials, would it? I'm assuming it's probably theoretically not possible to do um, some of those like rubberized prints that you were talking about, like that the um, uh, what was it called the the TPU. softer yeah thank you that do that mixed with like a P PLA if you wanted to do like a, a padding or or add like a little bit more of a flexible joint or something to something like that um now as far as i know it doesn't generally mix the materials but i mean technically again you, you could swap in for a couple of layers to have a, a flexible section but i think there would always be a potential issue of whether or not those layers bond nicely together um ge right. ge generally with a multi-material you're going to be printing three to four colors of pla or three colors of pla and your pva supports because the support you don't want to attach um right using it using it for printing multiple materials is technically possible i mean again as an example if you were careful with it you could print outer walls in abs and the rest of the print in PLA, which would give you the strength of PLA and then an outer surface that could be chemically finished. But it, it, again, it's how well they those two types of plastic would bond together and the, the potential problems that introduces, again, is something that it's worth experimenting with, but not a, I, I need to be pushing stuff out doing this, this constantly. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it might be an idiotic question. If you've got a multi-head printer with multi-feeds, could you just load up the same material in all of them to just expand your uh, filament capacity to reduce that risk, say, during big prints of helmets of running out on the spool? Um, possibly there might be a with, better way yeah. of solving that no, problem. Yeah, I thought yeah. Of. No, um, I see what you mean. Um what you would need to have generally when you're doing a multi-material print like that when you slice the model with your software you paint the colors that you want onto the model and it, the slicer then tells it to at this point stop and switch from red to blue at this point then switch from blue to white and then from white back to red it, it knows in the slice where those switching points are but you could technically again with a, a firmware change um have it basically set up an alert saying if the sensor on filament reel one is zero activate filament reel two yeah it's it's technically possible the advantage to again that the slicing software is um and again, depending on what sort of displays your printer has, generally it tells you how long the print is going to take, 
and what weight of filament it is going to use. So as long as you've checked that in advance, um, it, do, it does happen. There's, we always take that gamble when you're down to kind of like the last 100 grams or so on a reel of have I got 110 grams on there or have I got 90 on there and just see what happens. Um, sometimes it's all right, sometimes it's not. Um, but generally it's a case of just once you know how fast your machine is running and you can see how much is left on the reel, you know when you need to change it over. Um, don't say it's always perfect. Um, but yeah, there's, there's potential. There's potentially a good idea there. So I think at this point, I'm just going to open up the floor for anyone to raise any questions or topics they think we might have missed that would be important to cover, highlight, or just that you've got personal curiosity over. So personally, and this is probably going to be playing a little uh, audience advocacy here, but where where do you source your your models from? Well, I can answer that one. I source mine from Jaren. <laughs> so, yeah, it's this. This is a bit of a minefield, uh, and something again to consider. Um, the first port of call I would always say for making a Merc's approvable costume is look at the Merc store. Uh, there are a number of three D models that three three D models. Sorry, made of a mouthful um, that have been produced by designers who are OMs with the club. Uh, there are approvable helmets, greeblies, blasters jetpacks all sorts of bits and pieces in there that are freely available yeah, uh, technically that's the 3d print library under downloads rather than yeah. the store yeah, but thank yeah. you it's, it's you there off the forum then obviously have the continuous sales forum and you have the hawkers guild both of which have a number of vetted vendors uh, who have been selling through the club for quite some time uh, these are all reliable and trustworthy sources of files. Most people will then look to Etsy. Uh, Etsy is a great resource for buying parts, but you have to be aware that not everything out there is necessarily going to be club approvable. So it's something you need to potentially talk to your wrestler or the app team about before you print. And again, before you spend any money, before you spend money on printing things, ask whether the file that you are printing that might take two to three days is actually acceptable. Uh, the other thing to look out for when using other sites is there are a lot of really great, finely detailed models out there that aren't necessarily well designed for 3D printing. And you will find that they struggle with detail, with support, with helmets that only have a, a wall that's maybe a millimetre or two thick and are, are never going to be strong enough overall for costuming. So take your time to look at the models, if you can, before you print them um, and look to see if there's either better ways of printing it or if somebody else has designed the model in a more print-friendly format. Just grabbing the first model that you see is not necessarily going to be ideal. There's, there's very much a honour system with 3D printing. Uh, a lot of people obviously make their files and in many cases make their files as a business and there is an implied degree of trust that if you buy those files you are not doing so to mass produce them. And some people sell their files with that commercial license but there are vendors out there who have literally just stolen work from other people and are reselling them for their own profit. So do, do your research on who you're buying from, do your research on the, the quality of what you're getting 
um, and check with your Rustlers and your approval team members before you print things if you're not sure, uh, just to make sure that you're not wasting that time and money. Um, the other option there is, as I do, start designing yourself. Um, there are a lot of different 3D designing resources out there, CAD software. You've got some free software like Blender, more um, complex software like ZBrush or Fusion 360, uh, Tinkercad, which is also free. Um, and take the time. There are some great tutorials out there and you can make your own parts, um, make your own blasters, make your own helmets, make your own armor, which is more complex. Um, but it's I, I, something I personally find very rewarding to take a kind of a, an initial piece of concept art um, someone may have produced to then take that from paper or a picture to a 3D model to then have that come into a physical object as a print and to then see it fully finished as a piece of their costume. It's I, I still find it amazing even now. Yeah, you've done me a couple of parts for um, both Mercs and Dark Empire costumes where I've literally just given you a 2D flat picture and, and you've you've knocked it out of the park for me. Yeah, it's it, it. I enjoyed doing it. Yeah, it's. Um, but yeah, just again, if you can't design yourself, if you can't find the model that you like, there are plenty of members within the Mercs, likely within your clan, who have the skill to design something for you. That will be to what you want. It, it'll be your unique piece, and this is one of the things where where three D printing can win out over kit bashing sometimes you you can't get the exact part that you want you can't get the exact design that you want to make your costume unique to you and this is where that bit of 3d modeling can come in and even if it's something as simple as um i helped to make an incinerator rifle um based on the incinerator trooper from uh, season one of the Mando, which was based on, I believe it was an H&K Airsoft frame, but then we needed an adapter to fit a piece of plumbing pipe to the front, which just didn't exist until I modelled it. And again, an hour's printing later, and we kitbashed everything else on that model with just two or three printed parts to make it go. There's there's, there's different ways of approaching things like that, which again, I, I, I love doing. It was in that case, it wasn't just making a whole thing, but it was making a thing that helped to solve a problem. And that's where, again, having that machine there, potentially long-term, is useful. Small problems come up, you can use it to fix them. Wonderful. Well, if no one's got any other questions, I think that has been quite an in-depth dive at this point. I'm sure if... Um, if listeners have any questions after this, we will make sure to monitor the forum thread for this episode, and we will make sure Jaren's in there answering questions, putting through a bit more 3D printing pain. Yeah, please don't spam my inbox with DMs, because those alerts do come to me at three or four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you for such an in-depth chat there, Jaren. I think right, now but... we'll move on to a bit of Star Wars news, though. Absolutely. So, who's had the chance to sit down and watch the new trailers and announcements for Star Wars Outlaws? Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. Cannot wait for that. 
yeah, I've also, I got to watch, uh, I think I was a few minutes behind live because I had a meeting beforehand, but yeah, I watched it as they announced it live. It was pretty, uh, pretty cool. The, some of the gameplay trailers are, are looking fantastic. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm very, very interested. This looks, um, very much like the 1313 project that never got to see the light of day. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably where it's been born from, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very excited to see something along those veins come come to fruition. And it mm. seems I I really like the, you know, you know, we've we've had our, our Space Wizard games. Um they're very fun. I really enjoyed them. Um, but I'm I'm very much ready to get into the smugglers, the the down dirty crime syndicate side of the Star Wars uh, universe. I'd say the denizens. Yeah. Yep. I'm interested to see how the gameplay unfolds and if we get a bit bit of a clearer picture in future release videos because it does seem very geared up that you are playing a specific character. But what isn't clear for me is if you can take that specific character down multiple, say, job paths. Um, so sort of how complex their skill tree might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely, it did seem like from the gameplay that there's probably going to still be a, um, a bit of like, you'll, you'll end up at the same ish point at the end of the storyline. Um, but how you get there is going to be a little bit different, a little how, how, how you want to make it. Um, especially just from, um, from those that have seen the trailer, like the dialogue options that you have, um, there Those was a very look good like they'll have at least some some impact there was a very good mix in the trailer of uh stealth gameplay leading into then some more frantic sort of heavy shooting gameplay to then mechanical interactions with the scenery uh to then jumping onto a speeder bike so it looks like these will all be different areas of gameplay that you can helpfully hopefully specialize into um, mm-hmm. depending how you want to play your way through it um i know there's always people that like to Try to finish off games without killing any NPCs out there, uh, giving complete pacifist approach, or whether you can just run in guns blazing and blow everything up. It's... Uh, I'm, a, I'm a tank. I'm a tank player. <laughs> so do you think those dialogue options might be, say, a bit Mass Effect-ish in actually having tangible impact to the game and the path you follow? I I have hopes that they will have some impact. I don't know that they'll make lasting relationships, but it definitely seems um definitely seems like some of the dialogue and choices that you make will have impacts on you and your crew's relationship with um the different syndicates in the area. Yeah, it'd be interesting to 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 perhaps look whether they have a morality thing. So other game trailers I've seen recently that reminded me of this is I remember playing the Fable series and mm. their version of that morality swing was it physically altered your character, how it, right. how you how you actually looked. Um, and I wouldn't expect Star Wars to adapt that premise, but by contrast, say, um, Hogwarts Legacy, you you can play a more noble character, you can play a more dark wizard character, but your choices in the game have zero impact on how the world then interacts back with you. 
Yeah, this definitely seems like some of the choices that you make will filter out to the rest of the world. Um, I think they still haven't shown if there's going to be any character changes, but I imagine, um, especially with some of the characters that you meet for, for your own crew, um, I'm sure there's going to be potential for some sort of um, interactions and consequences for, for your choices with them. I think one of the interesting things with um, with Outlaws coming up um, was the potential return for Kira. Potential. Obviously nothing's been announced. Um, yeah, it was was it was the Ben Mendelsohn interview for um, Secret Invasion where he was asking her about whether she could be back and the look that she gave him and the look of shock and the fact that she can't say anything. <laughs> that, 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 that's a character that would be interesting to turn up there. Yeah, I would I would love to see her um her character make an appearance again and mm. uh the era fits right in since this game is to be taking place between Empire and Return. So Yep. There's a lot of stuff going on with her if you if you're uh small spoilers, if you're reading the the comics, there's a lot of stuff going on with her character there. Um so it would be nice to have her her come back cuz I I very much actually would like to see that character come back to either Disney plus or the big screen again. But um, if, you know, if it's going to be, we're limited to video games and comics, I'll, I'll at least take video games. I get to get to hear her again. Yeah. I think it'll be a, be an interesting one to see how that pans out. Well, the, the fact that it's Ubisoft developing, it gives me strong hope as a long-term fan of the Assassin's Creed franchise. It's been enjoyable to see how that has developed over time. Yes. And I know that they are doing the uh, Pandora open world game as well. Yes. Yes, that's actually uh, a good point. Is um, from, from what I've heard, the Pandora game was actually kind of how we got um, Outlaws in the first places. They showed off um, the Pandora uh, world game for for Disney and at that point they're like this is great can you do it for Star Wars as well um so and, and I'm, I'm excited is, to see that since I've looked at some of the footage for Pandora with the launch videos it's got quite the reminiscence of uh the recent Far Cry series that Ubisoft have also done I think mm-hmm. some of the base interactions and some of those repeatable events I, I wouldn't call them exactly reskinned but you you can see that they've they've got a bit of a formula there, so right. Hopefully, Star Wars doesn't pivot in that exact same formula again, and it's just reskinned. Now, following on from the the Assassin's Creed potentially parallel there, again that's that's a, a series that's had a long running history, so potential there for a long running franchise again, maybe. Look at the look at the popularity of. Um, Fallen Order into Jedi Survivor. Yep. I don't know whether they ever planned a sequel for that, but it was... uh, It was one of those games that sort of proved you can make a good single-player game and people will go out and buy it. Oh, yeah. You've still got to pick up a copy of Survivor. Um, It is a very good game. Yeah. With, With everything pushing to online services and online battle royales... It's good to see that there are franchises, and I'm pretty sure it's getting slightly off topic here, but like Fallen Order, like God of War, 
that can just deliver strong single-player games Mm -hmm. to show publishers there is a market for it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, especially... As as I've gotten older, I've definitely noticed I'm a little bit more in the casual gamer sense these days. Like, I'm not, you know, competitive multiplayer every day, all day. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm definitely more, more into, I get home, I want to just relax, want to play some story, you know, just kind of hang out in a, in a different world. Yeah. Yeah, I have to agree with that one. Yeah, I know my, my reaction speed is definitely slowing down as I get older, and it wasn't that fast to begin with. <laughs> Says one of the youngest on this call. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think the only other part of news that we've seen is Disney look to be having a bit of a reshuffle with their movie lineup, which I suspect is something to do with the ongoing strikes. Um, but with one of the Star Wars movies delayed from... T- December 25 to May 26, it was interesting to see um, that they've added a film to the schedule. So, do we think that the unnamed title that's been delayed and the unnamed title that's been announced are potentially tied to each other as a part one, part two, or are we hoping for two completely different IPs? Depends on which one we're discussing coming first. It'd be nice to see the Dave, Dave, the Dave Filoni Mandoverse film split down into a couple. Um, but it, is it more likely to be the um, the formation of the New Jedi Republic? So we're starting to see a um, series coming off 15 years after um, The Rise of Skywalker. Are we looking at that front? I think until we know which ones and which order they're, they're actually going to drop them, it's a bit difficult to answer, or at least it is for me. I'm also curious if maybe this is one of the, like, formerly rumored projects finally getting some some light. I know there was talk of Taika's movie, um, but like that got announced and then kind of got nothing to it. So I'm wondering if that it might be something along those lines of, hey, it's one of those projects that we've talked about but hasn't hasn't seen a light of day other than hey, we're doing it. If they're going to do that, I would love for it to be Rogue Squadron back. Me too. Yeah. I was I was a little heartbroken when that one uh, got shelved. Mm-hmm. To be honest, it's more content. I don't mind. There's more content coming. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's also Star Wars is so vast in what it offers that, like, mm-hmm. if you don't, if you don't enjoy, you know, the next movie, there's a pretty good chance that, that the one after it will be something that you enjoy. There's a, there's at least aspects of it, you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, 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 there's so many different projects out there at the moment that you can't be expected to like all of them. Um, but you have got that variety out there. Or remember all of them. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. I do have a, a little bit of a question. Do you think that general audiences and and the fan base at this point is ready for two movies in a single year again? I don't think the fan base are, because if they don't like the first one, whether the second one's any good or not, the second one is going to yeah. suffer. We yeah, saw I, that, I we saw that with Solo. That. 
we saw that with Solo coming out so soon after the Last Jedi. That was, yeah, that was a mistake. I think also mind. another problem for Solo was that it came out so close to was it Infinity War or Endgame? One of the one of those two. Yeah, I mean it did, but I still think that its biggest failure was coming out so soon after the Last Jedi and the fan backlash on the Last Jedi. Yeah, if, if they'd if they'd pushed it back to a December release rather than punting it out to the May release, it 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 may have served better. I don't know if there's any May about it. Yeah, that's true. I think what we're saying is we can't have nice things. <laughs> we want nice things, but we don't always get them. Or we don't always deserve them, rather, as a fan base. Well, I think with that, that pretty well rounds up the interesting Star Wars news to discuss this month. So I'd like to thank our listeners for sticking with us this far into the podcast this month. It was a very heavy topic, but one we felt important to cover. So with that, from myself and the rest of the team, we thank you, and we'll see you again next month. This has been a production of the Mandalorian Burks Costume Club. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed on today's show, please visit www.mandalorianmercs.com. The Mandalorian Mercs is a worldwide Star Wars costuming organization comprised of and operated by Star Wars fans. Star Wars, its characters, costumes, and all associated items are intellectual property of Lucasfilm. Copyright 2009 Lucasfilm Limited. We hope you enjoyed our show, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please email podcast at mercs.firespray.net. Until next time, happy hunting.